Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with psychiatrist and trauma researcher Bessel van der Kolk. And there is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello, hello. Yeah, okay. There we go. Got it now. You hear me now? Hello? Yes, Yes. hello. Oh, hi. It's Krista Tippett. Could be a little louder if you can make it. I'm I'm working on the headphone. Okay. Hello, it's Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. Hi. Would you say your name for me? I want to say it perfectly. My name is Bessel van der Kolk. Van der Kolk, okay. Um, Do you have any... Thank you. First of all, thank you for coming. Um, I uh, have so enjoyed um, kind of steeping in your work, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and I'm glad we could reschedule it for today. Um, do, Do you have any questions for me before we start? No, I'll just plunge into the unknown. All right, that's good. (laughs) Okay, let's um, talk about something mundane first so we can get levels. Uh, Tell me what you had for breakfast. I had had some yogurt and strawberries for breakfast. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And some locks. Oh, you did? And some toast. Oh, yeah, you had a good breakfast, yeah. Okay. How are we, Chris? Can we start? All right, let's do this. Okay, I'm going to step out of the booth. Okay. Oh, um, my producer wanted me to ask you if you have a Twitter feed. I don't actually, no. All right, okay. Um, so let's just begin. Um, you you grew up in the Netherlands, is that correct? Well, part in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 18 when I came here. Okay. So and, it's been a while. Okay. I um I always start my conversations with this question, whoever I'm speaking with. Um, I'm just wondering, was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? Yeah, multiplicity. My parents were fundamentalist Christians mm. uh, in some good and some not so good ways. And as an adolescent, I spent a fair amount of time in a monastery in France called Thézé. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. Oh. Interesting. So you went to Teze just... Uh, because I loved the music. Yeah. I loved Gélino. Yes. Wow. That's fascinating. But it was still very small at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And then, um, you know, this, this field you're in um, of trauma, traumatic stress, nowadays in 2013... This language is everywhere, right? Um, this language of trauma and traumatic stress has made its way into culture, movie, TV scripts, the news, public policy discussions. But I wonder um, if you uh, if you trace any, you know, you know, what was this something that you were aware of um, in in your earlier life, perhaps by different names? Um, if if there's any, if you if you look back to any roots of, you know, why this so captured your imagination. Well, these are always retrospective accounts, you know. I yeah. have, uh, I'm one of five kids, and I'm the only one of five who is really fascinated by this topic. Um, so it is, um, 
what I, I was just telling somebody yesterday is that my father was um, in a German concentration camp uh, mm. for religious reasons. And uh, he'd come back and he was quite an authoritarian man. And from very early on, I would point out to him the contradictions between what he professed to believe in and how he actually acted. Um, <laughs> and the contradictions between people saying nice things and doing other things has always been very much central to my observations, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, including uh, how trauma pervades our society and how um, there's this need to deny large chunks of reality. For example, just before invading another country, we know the data on what will happen to soldiers who go off to war after they come home. And those are very well spelled out in the past hundred years. But when we go off to war, nobody says if we go to war of the survivors, more will kill themselves after coming home than will have died in the battlefield. And even though they start off being relatively nice people, they're likely to commit atrocities. And about half of them will get drug addiction, alcohol problems. Mm. There's, a, there's a lot of facts that are out there which we choose to ignore. We don't reckon with. Um, yeah. how, so so I've, heard, I've read a few different accounts of how you stumbled into this field. Um, when, where, how do you trace the beginnings of your research into traumatic stress? Well, um, it starts in a very pedestrian way. Uh, you know, I'm a psychiatrist from a generation that uh, it was generally recommended that people have their own, own heads examined, which I think is sort of a good idea <laughs> yes. if you try to help other people. And so psychoanalysis was the way to do that back then. And the only program that paid for that was the VA. Mm. So I went to work for the VA for the same reason that soldiers go to the VA, namely to get their benefits package. Okay. And this uh, was in the 1970s, is that right? This is 1970s, yeah. 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 And um, like many of my colleagues, I was just there too. Uh, it's a step in my career. Mm. And then the very first person I saw was a Vietnam veteran who had terrible nightmares. I happened to have studied nightmares up to that point. I'd mm. done some sleep studies on that. And uh, I knew a little bit how to treat it, so I gave him some medicines to make the nightmares go away. And two weeks later, he came back and I said, uh, so how did the medicines work? And he said, I did not take your medicines because I realized I need to have my nightmares because I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam. Mm. And that statement was the opening of my fascination uh, about how people become living testimonials for things that no longer exist, but they need to hold it in their hearts and minds and bodies and brains. And uh, the loyalty to the dead, the loyalty to what was, uh, just blew me away. And uh, the, the veterans really, um, really touched me very deeply, uh, both for what they had done how ashamed they were about what they had done, uh, how they went in idealistically, how, can, how they came back broken, mm. how they relied on their comrades. And they reminded me, I think, of the, the uncles and my father who I grew up with mm. in the Netherlands after the Second World War. So it, it resonated with me. And, and at that time, um, I believe there was no formal connection made <clears throat> between military service and... Um, problems after after discharge, right? This well, diagnosis hadn't happened? 
Well, it comes and goes. You know, I became quite interested in the history of how Western culture has looked at trauma. Yeah. And people were very aware of it in the 1880s and after the Civil War and during the First World War and during the Second World War. And then in between, it gets forgotten. So at the time that I started to see these guys, it was a forgotten period. Mm. And so uh, it's amazing how the culture gets deeply preoccupied with it. And then there's always a reaction against it. There's always a backlash against victims, against veterans, uh, which if you want me to, I can mm. be happy to talk about. And then uh, so from idealizing and putting the, the veterans on the pedestal, they always get ignored and abandoned. Uh, that's the history of of the field. And so the way the, the time that I got into the field happened to be a time that of ignorance again. Uh, but after these the things Vietnam come and go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and and my understanding from your writing is that this diagnosis of PTSD, which we the term we use now, came about because of post-Vietnam War advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so later on, um, I became aware of of all sorts of colleagues who had been working with abused kids and rape victims, and they had been trying to get a diagnosis in. And mm. um, that group was too small to have any political clout. And it's really the Vietnam veterans that brought this in and the power of the large numbers of psychiatrists and patients at the VA. Mm -hmm. That was strong enough to make it an, an issue and a diagnosis. Right. And so then once you had had that diagnosis, then you started to be able to apply it to these other kinds of populations of trauma. Yeah. Not, not, there were always people who were doing that. So mm. it's not like I. It, 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 there's always people who see the abuse and, and study it. But there's always the question, uh, does the culture do research agencies, do diagnostic manuals, do mm -hmm. books recognize that? Uh, and indeed, uh, as a consequence, uh, issues of child abuse and domestic violence also became more and more recognized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that that language you used a moment ago about that first veteran you spoke with, um, that he was a living testimonial um, to his memories and to something that had happened, which no longer was happening, but utterly defined him, right? This mm. is a good way into how you define trauma. And so I'd like to spend a moment on that. I mean, s start with me. You know, how, how do you describe um, what this is, trauma, as you deal with it, as you study it, as you treat it? Yeah. Well, what I think happens is that you know, people have terrible experiences, and we all do. And we are a very resilient species. So if we are around people who love us, trust us, take care of us, uh, nurture us when we are down, um, most people do pretty well with even very horrendous events. Um, but particularly traumas that occur at the hands of people who are supposed to take care of you, um, if you're not allowed to, feel what you feel, know what you know, um, you, your mind cannot integrate what goes on, mm -hmm. and you can get stuck on the situation. So the social context in which it occurs is fantastically important. Uh, we saw a, an example of that after 9-11 in New York, is that people were upset and very um, affected by what happened, but very few people got traumatized by it. Mm -hmm. very, very few people got stuck. And that's really because there was such an overwhelming outpouring of sympathy, support, et cetera, et cetera. You see the same thing now after the 
Boston Marathon bombing mm-hmm. is that uh, by and large those victims will probably do okay. Uh, also because we have really discovered ways of help pe- helping people very effectively these days with one-time trauma. Um, the, the, what emerged in my work, um, and not everybody, so uh, sort of my particular bailiwick, is the amount of trauma that occurs in the context of intimate relationships, caregiving relationships, uh, in the context of relationships where you uh, should expect to be heard, listened to, and understood. Right. Um, I, I think this is such an happen. interesting point you make yeah. that as human beings, from the moment of birth, we are dependent on others to relieve distress. And, yeah. right? and I mean, I, you know, of course, it's a, it's a simple idea, but it, 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 it's so um, striking to name it, to articulate it. And that, that then when the people who are supposed to make you safe become the source of trauma, um, it's very distorting. It's very distorting. And right. And what's striking to me in my profession is that there's this insistence on seeing people as individual organisms mm-hmm. who are independent of the social environment. And even the new diagnostic manual, DSM-5, there's virtually nothing that talks about or addresses the issue that, uh, of our interdependence and how the social context in which we live has a very profound effect on how we feel and how we see ourselves and how we get along and and, and how we are damaged or able to be resilient yeah. in the face of trauma. Yeah. And so, so tell me how this applies then in the experience of veterans. Is it because they are so utterly outside a context in which there is any um, concern for their distress? I mean... Well, I, I, this, it is somewhat different for veterans, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, the veterans are such, is such a continuous, high-level involvement in in very high stressful situations, and people bond very strongly to the people in the field. And yes, the, yes. Uh, the, the, there is no friendship like the friendship that's formed under battle. And you, a colleague of mine in Australia, Alexander McFarland, right now, is studying every single Australian soldier who is sent to war, and studies. Sort of basically every known variable, biological variable known to mankind, and what he, what he finds is that the brains of these guys move to become very hyper alert to danger, mm. to the present time, and become less and less capable of uh, being quiet under ordinary circumstances. And with every new deployment, you see a more abnormal activation of brain waves in the direction of being focused on threat and not being focused on day-to-day experiences. Right. Uh, so that's that, and it, so these things all, all live side by side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the issue of soldiers gets complicated if, as often happens, soldiers under these extreme situations do things or see things or stand helplessly by as things happen mm-hmm. that are um, profoundly disturbing and it oftentimes involves extreme cruelty. Right. And we don't do well with killing. We, uh, we uh, human uh, beings. We as human beings. Mm-hmm. People tend to have a hard time seeing other people being blown away and killed right. uh, at their own hands. And, and seeing that uh, is very hard for human beings. So um, something that's very interesting to me in how you talk about trauma, the experience of trauma, what it is, is 
is how um, the nature of memory is distorted, that, that, that memories are never precise recollections, but that, that in general, as, as we move through the world, um, memories become integrated and transformed into stories that, that help right. us make sense. But that when in the case of traumatic memories, they're not integrated and they're not even really remembered as much as they're relived. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That's actually a very old observation. It was made extensively in the 1890s already by various people, including Freud. And that's really what you see when you see traumatized people. You know, um, these days now the trauma is a popular subject. People say, tell me about your trauma. Right. But the nature about trauma is that you actually have no recollection for it as a story, in a way. Uh, uh, many victims over time get to tell a story to explain why they are so messed up. But the nature of a traumatic experience is that the brain doesn't allow a story to be created. And here you have an interesting paradox that it's normal to distort your memories. Like, you know, as I told you, I'm one of our five kids, when we have a family reunion, we all tell stories about our own childhood. Yeah. And everybody always listens to everybody else's story and says, did you grow up in the same family as I did? Right, like, there are five uh, versions of yeah, like, There's yeah. all these very, very different versions, and they barely ever overlap. So we, we, people create their own realities in a way. Mm-hmm. What is so extraordinary about trauma is that these images or sounds or physical sensations don't change over time. Uh, so people who have been molested as kids continue to see the wallpaper of the room in which they were molested, or these, uh, when they examined all these priest abuse victims, uh, they keep seeing the silhouette of the priest standing in the door of the bathroom and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, So it's these images, these sounds that don't get changed. So it's normal to change. Uh, and um, my old teacher, George Valian, did a very, he was in charge of a study that you may have heard about. It's called the Grand Study. And from 1932 to 1942, yes. 1939 to 1942, they followed the classes at Harvard um, at that time. Right, right. And they followed them up every five years. And it's going on to this day. So these guys are very old now, and most of them have died. Um, and so the, most of them get, went off to war in 1942. And almost all of them came back in 1945, and they were interviewed. Um, so they have these old interviews from 1945 in which they tell their stories. And then they have interviews in 1989, 1990, 1991. And it turns out that the people who did not develop PTSD, which is the vast majority, tell very different stories, let's say, in 1990 than back in 1945. Huh. And so they have they, now is a glorious experience, and it was a growth experience, and how cool it was, how close they were to people, and how patriotic they felt. And it's all sort of cleaned up. Right. Um, but it's, beca- it it's become nice. a coherent narrative. But it's very coherent, yes. and it's a nice story, and it's good to listen to it, and the relatives have all heard it a million times. But right. uh, everybody's happy, mm-hmm. uh, because we make happy stories in our mind. Uh, the people who got traumatized continue to have the same story in 1990 as they told back in 1945. Right, right. right. Uh, so they cannot transform it. And, and uh, so, yeah. if, so if we treat pe- when we treat people, mm-hmm. uh, you see the narrative change, and people mm-hmm. start introducing new elements. I compare it very much to what happens when people dream. Uh, uh, maybe dreaming is very central here, actually, in that the natural way in which we deal with difficult stuff is we go to sleep and we dream, and next day we feel better. It's very striking mm-hmm. huh, how mm-hmm. 
we get upset and then say, I'm going to move to Florida, one more day in Boston in the winter. And the next morning you wake up and you shovel out your car and everything's, everything's fine. And so you, you, sleep is a very important way in which we restore ourselves. And uh, that process of that restoration that occurs during REM sleep, dream sleep, is probably in part very an important factor in why traumatic memories uh, do not get integrated. And in, tra- in victims of trauma, there's there are nightmares, right? And so, I mean, even that yeah. is disrupted. And the nightmares, again, see what happens with nightmares is that many of them don't occur during dreams. They occur mm. in the middle of mm. the deepest part of sleep where people have no mental content. They just feel intense fear. I see. Or they see an image, but it's not like a dream. Right. Um, the dreams are a different phenomenon, which are also can be terrifying dreams, but they're not as traumatic as these night terrors. Um, and then, but people wake themselves up out of these dreams in which the trauma comes back, and in part probably because they wake themselves up, the trauma doesn't get integrated. And also, that gets at the fact that um, this is not. It's not just cognitive, right? It's not just a story that you could tell. I mean, it may eventually become a story, but that it's 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 body memory. It's a right, you know, right. it's a neural yeah. net yeah. of memory. Yeah. It's not just about words that you can formulate. Yeah. It, it's amazing to me how what a hard time many people I know have with that. That this is not about something you think or something you figure out. This is about your body, your organism having been reset to interpret the world as a terrifying place and mm. yourself as being unsafe. And it has nothing to do with cognition, with, you know, um, you can say to people, you shouldn't feel that way mm. or you're not a bad person or it wasn't your fault. And people say, I know that, but I feel that it is. Right, right. Uh, you can say to um, came it was very striking um, in our yoga study because we see yoga as an, one important thing that helps people who've been traumatized because they get back into their bodies. Yeah. How hard it was for people to even during the most blissful part of the yoga practice called Shivasana, uh, what a hard time traumatized people had had at that moment to just feel relaxed and safe mm. and feel totally enveloped with goodness. And it's, uh, the sense of goodness and safety disappears out of your body, basically. Mm. I want to talk about <clears throat> I want to talk about yoga in a minute. That's really yeah. um, and I mean and um, so so this gets at why, uh, as you said, I mean people were talking about this in the late nineteenth century. Freud talked about it, and I mean I guess his phrase was hysteria. But 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 something that you seem to have noticed early on is that traditional therapy was ignoring this sensate dimension. Of um, right. of these experiences, and trying yeah. to reduce it to talk therapy, which 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 absolutely didn't fit with the experience. Right, right. Uh, there's a few people here and there uh, in the last 150 years who do it. Uh, the great Frenchman Pierre Renaud did, uh, Wilhelm Reich, of course, who then went crazy afterwards. Uh, mm. So here and there, people notice the somatic dimension of it, but by and large, I think psychology training really breeds attention to the body out of people, even medical training. Uh, It's amazing. Psychiatrists just don't pay much attention to sensate experience at all. And this, so uh, you're um, part of the field of what is called neurobiology, and is that in fact a way to describe what neurobiology is doing, putting the body back into the equation? No, I, no, no, I wouldn't say so. You know, there is Centers for Cognitive Neuroscience at MIT and Harvard. Mm-hmm. 
uh, extremely well run, well funded, fascinating places. But the body experience is not a central part of what I, the lecturers I hear there are preoccupied with. Uh, I have a colleague, a former friend of mine, uh, who is a professor at the University of Western Ontario, who is a very hardcore neuroscientist who studies that experience. But very few people do. Mm. Um, Antonio Damasio. Yes. In, in his books, The Feeding of What Happens in books like that, really talks about how our core experience of ourselves is a somatic experience mm-hmm. and that the function of the brain is to take care of the body. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a minority voice. It's a small voice. But it, it, it seems to me that, that what we're learning from brain imaging is bearing out um, m- m- these kinds of observations. I mean, are, are, yeah. yeah, what are we learning? Are, are, is well, any of this but, surprising? What we see is mm-hmm. that the parts of the brain that help people to think clearly and to observe things clearly really get interfered with by trauma. And the, the, the imprint of trauma is in areas of the brain that really have no access to cognition. So mm. it, it's in an area called the periaxial gray, which sort of has something to do with the sort of total safety of the body. Um, the amygdala, of course, which is the smoke detector, alarm bell system of the right. brain. That's where the trauma lands. And trauma makes that part of the brain hypersensitive or renders it totally insensitive. Mm. Uh, There's a part of the brain called the insula, which sort of connects your aware brain with your body and tells you whether something feels pleasurable or or disgusting or good or tasteful and that you anticipate before you go out in the morning, let's say you, the insulate lights up to tell you it's nice weather outside and let's get a, let's put on some nice dress or uh, mm. it feels rainy outside so let's put an umbrella up. And this part of your body sort of helps you to imagine what your body feels like out there. That part of your body gets very messed up by trauma. Um, and so the self, and then the self-observational part of the brain that you need to really know what's going on inside of you also gets quite, uh, quite destroyed, quite impaired. And the, the Broca's area? Well, in, in our study and some others, uh, I mean, that for me, that was really the, the great finding early on, is that uh, when people are into their trauma, Broca's area shuts down. And that is something that almost everybody has experienced. When you get really upset with your partner or your kid, um, suddenly you take leave of your senses and you say horrible things to that person mm. and afterwards you say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Uh, well, the reason why you said it is because Broca's area, which is sort of the part of your brain that helps you to be uh, to say reasonable things and to understand things and articulate them, shuts down. So when people really become very upset, uh, that whole capacity to put things into words in an articulate way disappears. Right. And right. for me, that is a very important finding because it helped me to realize that if people need to overcome the trauma, we need to also find methods that bypass what they call the tyranny of language. Right. Don't ask, them to, don't ask people to be verbal, to verbalize it. Or to be reasonable. <laughs> like right. the, the trauma is not about being reasonable or to be verbal or to right. be articulate. Huh? Well, yeah. yeah, and I mean, something else in, in your writing is that, that uh, so it seems like trauma, there are all these impulses that we have that, that, we, that, we were, that we're working with all the time that get so out of whack with trauma. And so, I mean, I've understood that it's not just that we have memories and that we um, um, so and we process them in different ways but also that we are constantly rationalizing that we have this impulse right. to rationalize right. but then when people are traumatized um, they are actually 
they also have this impulse to rationalize and then become unable to under, to to grasp the irrelevance of of that memory right. and that feeling to the present moment. Yeah. Well, this is, of course. Oh, hello. <laughs> Can you guys hear anything? Oh. Did they hear it happen too? Okay. <laughs> I know, I know, it's true. Oh, hello. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, very faintly. Um, okay. yeah, Something you, seems to have shifted. Can you hear me better now? Y- yes. Um, you just, you just, we just lost your voice. Something may have changed here, but I may have figured something. Can you hear me now? Hello? Yeah, hello? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Okay, good. Yeah, you're can back. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. You okay. just... Is he? Okay, we need to... Um, we need to work on the sound. You just, um, your voice just disappeared at the beginning of that last answer. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But you can hear me okay now? I can hear you. My, my producer is saying that your voice sounds a little muffled. Uh-huh. Okay. Are you, are you, could you, do you think he... I can move some dials along. Uh, is, the, is the engineer there? Hello? Oh, hello. There's nobody here who oh. can help me. Okay. Yeah, we will we'll we will call the engineer. Uh-huh. Sorry. I'm so but sorry. We're writing I can hear you this. fine. Okay. Are we can okay? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, no. I guess no. we can't. We're my engineer is working with um uh-huh. the people at your end. So let's Okay. Yes. I changed my... No, what happened is that um, I moved my chair a little bit, and with it I seem to have pulled on something here. Oh. Yeah, as soon as the engineer gets here. Uh, but so, I mean, you sound perfectly reasonable to mm-hmm. me, so... Well, you, yeah. yeah, it sounds fine to me, too, but I guess something changed in the quality, sound quality. Uh-huh. I'm really enjoying this. I, I'm, I, you ask very good questions. I, I like. To, good. I, I like talking about this. Uh, okay. Good. Good. Okay. All right. All right. I don't. Yeah. I don't want us to keep talking because I don't want us to say anything that we won't be able to use. So. Okay. Mm. Do you still have lots of family in the Netherlands? I'm actually going tomorrow, oh. uh, but somehow I've lucked out to be taught in, uh, to teach in the Netherlands uh, about once a year for the last 30 years oh, or so. Oh, that's great. But I'm a foreigner there, you know, like, uh, <laughs> I speak the language, but I've lived here for so long now that mm-hmm. uh, I, I consider myself a Boston Brahmin. Oh, do you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> With an accent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
But it's an intriguing country. But it's far away. <laughs> it is yeah. an intriguing country. I yeah, spent the, the, a great. I spent a quite a lot of time in Germany in the 1980s, and uh, mostly in Berlin. In those, in that very different world of the Cold War and the division. Yeah. And I well, got Germany to Holland. Still, uh, Berlin still freaks me out. It's it's Does interesting. It? My daughter is a dancer and choreographer, and she loves dancing in Berlin. <sighs> and I go to Berlin, and all I hear is the is the SS marching through the streets and the communists yeah. and stuff. And so it's the issue of perception again. Like, yeah. uh, I really, I see Berlin through the lens of history and I cannot get away from it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, people who were born in the last 30 years or so, 40 years, have, don't have those associations and they feel very, very happy there. So it should just be just a second. Okay. okay. They'll be ready to go. I think somebody's about to come. Okay. Where are you located? We're in Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, the show the show is on the air in Boston. I mean, it's on all over, but we produce yeah, in I Minnesota. Know, I know. Yeah. <sighs> okay. I moved this wire, and something happened here. Uh, that goes down. Okay. Uh, pull back into the microphone. See if okay. I can hear you. Say all right. Hello. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is better. That's good. Chris, are you okay. good? Yeah. We're good. Okay. Okay. Are they they're hearing you? Yeah, mm -hmm. they hear me fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, are we... Okay, we can go back. Thank so, you. do you remember we were at... Um, <laughs> you yeah, were just we were about, about... It was so animated about rationality. Mm. Was it about... Oh, right, that was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how, you know... Yeah, so we have these two different parts of our brain, and they're really quite separate. Huh? So we have the, our animal brain that makes us go to sleep and makes us hungry and makes us turn on to other human beings in a sexual way, stuff like that. Um, and then we have our rational brain that makes us get along with other people in a civil, civilized way. These two are not all that connected to each other. Mm. And so the more upset you are, the more shut down, you shut down your rational part of your brain. And what, is it, what, is it, what, is about, uh, what I was about to say is that, you know, when you look at the political discourse, is that right. everybody can rationalize what they, what they believe in and talk endlessly about why what they believe is the right thing to do, mm -hmm. while your emotional responses are totally at variance with those seemingly rational behaviors. And it's also striking how little our arguments, let's say, about gun control, really has have an effect on people who have different opinions. Right, right, right. Uh, we can we can talk till the, the boon in the face, but if our primitive part of our brain perceives something in a particular way, it's almost impossible to talk ourselves out of it, which of course makes sort of verbal psychotherapy also extremely difficult because mm -hmm. that part of the brain is so very hard to access. Yeah, we're pretty fascinating creatures, aren't we? <laughs> fascinating, disturbing, yes. glorious, all those things. <laughs> all those <laughs> things all at once. Right. So I, I do want to talk about yoga now, which is which is something very important to me as well, um, something mm. I've discovered in the last five or six years. And uh, how did you get, get interested? How did you discover yoga and then make well, that part of this kind of work? We actually got into yoga in a very strange way. Uh, we learned that there is a way of measuring uh, the integrity of your reptilian brain, i.e. Um, how the very most primitive part of your brain deals with arousal. And the way that you, way you measure that is with something called heart rate variability. And that tells you something about how your breath and your heart are in sync with each other. And it turns out that the calmer people are and the more mindful people are, the higher their heart rate variability is. 
And then we were doing that on some time with these people, and we noticed that they had lousy heart rate variability. Mm. And then I thought, so how can we change people's heart rate variability? And is this something you'd n- naturally be aware of or not? You wouldn't No, you wouldn't but know you, can it me- you can measure it, and it's fairly okay. easy to measure it. Okay. Like, there are like apps for your iPhone okay. um, <laughs> on which you can measure them. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, we do it in a more sophisticated way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we found this very abnormal heart rate variability in traumatized people. And then uh, we heard that there were... 17,000 yoga sites that claimed that yoga changed heart, changed heart rate variability. And the, a few days later, some yoga teachers walked by our clinic and said, hey, do you think you can use this for some project? And I said, we sure can. We'd love to see if yoga changes heart rate variability. And uh, this whole yoga thing also fits very well with the increasing recognition that traumatized people cut off their relationship to their bodies. Right. And I have to give a little bit of background here. Um, that way back already in 1872, Charles Darwin wrote a book about emotions, in which he talks about how emotions are expressed in things like heartbreak and gut-wrenching experience. So you feel things in your body. Yeah. And that's sort of been a subtext in psychology for a long time and keeps getting ignored, but Darwin nailed it. And Narwin started to really show what the neuronal connections are with these intense physical experiences. And then it became obvious that if people are in a constant state of heartbreak and gut wrench, they do everything to shut down those feelings in their body. Mm. One way of doing it is taking drugs and alcohol. And the other thing is that you can just shut down your emotional awareness of your body. And so uh, a very large number of traumatized people who we see, I'd say the majority of the people we treat at the trauma center and in my practice, uh, have very cut-off relationship to their bodies. They may not feel what's happening in their bodies. They may not register what goes on with them. And so what became very clear is that we needed to help people to feel, for, it, for them to be, feel safe feeling the sensations in their bodies, to start having a relationship with the life of their organism, as I mm. like to call it. Mm. And so a combination of events really led us into exploring yoga for that. And yoga turned out to be a very wonderful method for traumatized people to activate exactly the areas of consciousness um, the areas of the brain, the areas of your mind that you need in order to regain ownership over yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't think that yoga would be the only way to do it, or uh, I think if you only do yoga that you can totally take care, care of it. But yoga, to my mind, is an important component on an, of an overall healing program. Mm-hmm. And again, not only yoga, you could do maybe martial arts or qigong, uh, but something that engages your body in a very mindful and purposeful way um, with a lot of attention to breathing in particular, resets some critical brain areas that get very disturbed by trauma. And you, do you also have a yoga practice? I also have a yoga practice. Uh-huh. I, I do uh, not enough, of course. None of us ever does enough. But I try to start every day with a yoga practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And did I read somewhere that you also found that your heart rate variability was not 
um, in sync and it was not <laughs> robust enough. I keep quiet about it. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> and do you know if yoga has yeah. helped your... Uh, yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's, uh, nice, nice, even heart rate variability. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you have ever heard of somebody named Matthew Sanford who I've had on my program. He's actually... No. He's a yoga... He's a very renowned uh-huh. yoga teacher. He's been paraplegic since he was 13. Oh. Uh-huh. And his story is that... Um, he, about t- 20 years after that trauma, y- yoga helped him, he, what he understood, which is very much in sync with how you're saying it, you know, what he understood is that his body, he had no memory of the accident in which he was um, disabled and his his um, father was killed and his sister, but um, his body remembered it. Right? I mean, he talks about body, yeah. body memory. Yeah. It's the same thing you say, this imprint that trauma has, not just on mm. your mind and uh yeah and i i and i i i uh the, the other thing that he's doing recently is actually working with veterans and also working with um and this hasn't been on the show these are just conversations i'm having with him um that he's working with um young women suffering from anorexia hmm. and that, and understanding also that although that seems to be so much an obsession with the body um they are really in a traumatic relationship with their own bodies. And um, some of the yeah. things he was doing, which he actually did for me, I did a class with him, like just putting uh-huh. these very comforting weights, you know, on certain uh-huh. muscles. And you, so you feel sunk into your body in a way. And I don't know, yeah. I just was thinking, I've been thinking about this as I've been reading about your research. Huh. I, I think I've heard about, mm-hmm. about him, the, the name... Mm-hmm. Escape me, but but it sounds very sympathetic and very right. Huh? Yes, um, these sensory experiences of feeling weights and feeling your substance. Um, yes, you know, feeling your substance, I, which is yeah, bigger than yeah. just feeling a weight on your muscles, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's no, really feeling, feeling your body move and and the life inside of yourself mm-hmm. is is critical. And uh, you know, personally, uh, for example, for when people ask me, so what sort of Treatment? Have you explored? I always treat, explore every treatment that I explore for other people. Um, what's been most helpful for me has been rolfing. Has been what? Uh, um, rolfing. Rolfing is is um, called after Ida Rolf. Uh, it's a very deep tissue work where people oh, sort right. of yes, uh, tear your muscles from your fascia, and with the idea that at a certain moment your body comes to be contracted in a way that you habitually hold yourself. Mm-hmm. And so your body sort of takes on a certain posture. And the idea of rolfing is that you really open up all these connections and, and make the body flexible again in a very deep way. I I had asthma as a kid. I was very sickly as a kid. Mm. I was part of the group in the Netherlands. I mean, the final year of the war in the Netherlands, uh, during which I was born, uh, hundreds of thousands, of, about a hundred thousand kids died, died mm. uh, from starvation. And I was a very sickly kid, and I think I carried it in my body for a long time. And rolfing helped me to overcome that, actually. Mm. So I now I got a body; it became flexible and multipotential again. And for my patients, I always recommend that they uh, see somebody who helps them to really feel their body, experience their body open up to their bodies and uh, I refer all, people always to cranial sacral work yes, or Feldenkrais yes, and yes. I think those are all very important components about becoming a healthy person they're 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 you know but they're not that easy to find they're they're still kind of around the edges um 
Yeah. Feldenkrais and cranial sacral. Um, Isn't it strange how in Western culture, in a field like psychotherapy, or even I see this a lot in religion, we in Western culture we turned these things into these chin up experiences. We yeah. we, we we separated ourselves. Yeah. We divided yeah. ourselves. I, I I see this. I mean, yoga is everywhere now, right? It's um, yeah. and people are discovering all kinds of ways. As you say, there are all kinds of other ways to uh, to reunite ourselves. But uh, but but it, it's true. You know, Western culture is astoundingly disembodied yeah. and, and uniquely so because you know mm-hmm. because of my work I've, I've gone been to South Africa quite a few times and China and Japan and India and you see that we are much more disembodied and the way I like to say it is that we basically come from a post-alcoholic culture uh, people whose origins are in Northern Europe had only one way of treating distress mm. as namely mm. with a bottle of alcohol mm. and our North American culture continues to to continue that that notion. If you feel bad, just sw- take a swig or take a pill. Mm-hmm. And the notion that you can do things to to change the uh, the harmony inside of yourself is just not something that we teach in schools and mm-hmm. in our culture and our churches and our religious practices. Um, and of course, if you look at religions around the world, it's they always start with dancing, moving, yes, singing, yeah. um, crying, laughing, physical yeah. Yeah. experiences. Mm-hmm. And then the more respectable people become, the more stiff they become somehow. Yeah. And and then in the context of, of your larger work and this subject of trauma, um, it, you know, I can look at how modern Western people are kind of intuitively discovering these ways to reclaim their bodies and um, and and that is a way of becoming more resilient in fact in in an age which has a lot of things to be fearful about I mean a lot of change um. absolutely and so this is another area of research that um, I've been on the periphery of but that's very central to my thinking and that's research that shows that mindfulness meditation can have a very profound impact on the uh, activation of certain critical parts of your brain that help you be in charge of yourself. Yeah. Uh, so um, my colleague, Britta Hussle, a very young person still here at Harvard, uh, has done a series of studies on MBSR, the mindfulness yes. meditation technique invented by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, and finds very significant changes in the medial prefrontal cortex, which is probably the only way by which people can consciously gain control over those primitive parts of their brain. You you noted somewhere also that um, that where uh, Western psychology has always valued thinking things through, mm. other cultures, places like China, Japan, India, and Africa, have had ways to emphasize self-regulation, which is, I mean, it's just another way of talking about what you just said about what mindfulness-based stress reaction does. Yeah. Um, I also would like to ask you just about this EMDR. Hmm. And because I had not heard of this before. Um, Oh, really? You know, I hadn't. EMDR is a a bizarre and wondrous treatment. (laughs) And anybody who first hears about it, and myself included, thinks this is pretty hokey and strange. Uh, 
it's, an, it's something invented by Francis Shapiro, who found that if you move your eyes from side to side, as you think about distressing memories, uh, that the memories lose their power. And because of some experiences, both with myself, but even more with uh, patients of mine who told me about their experiences, I took a training in it. Uh, turned out to be incredibly helpful. And then I did what's probably the largest NIH-funded study on EMDR. And we found that of people with adult-onset trauma, so one-time trauma as an adult, mm -hmm. that it had the best outcome of any treatment that has been published. Uh, about 80% of our uh, patients were cured at the end of the study which is higher than any other study that has ever been published. And so what's intriguing about EMDR is both how well it works, and then the question is how it works, mm -hmm. and that got me into this dream stuff that I talked about earlier, and how it does not work through um, figuring things out and understanding things, but it activates some natural processes in the brain that help you to integrate these past memories. And I mean, it sounds so simple. And even when I was reading about it, moving yeah. your eyes back and yeah. forth. Um, I mean, is this something you can do for yourself, or is there something more complex going on? Um, it's probably easier. I imagine it can be done, but it's usually better if you do it with somebody else who so sort of stays with you, helps you to focus, makes the eye movements for you um, by uh, having them, having somebody else follow your fingers. Right. Uh, but it's a, it is astoundingly effective treatment. And it's interesting that even though, uh, you know, even in the most biased studies, uh, EMDR keeps coming up as this very effective treatment, uh, it's been very difficult to get funding to find out the very intriguing underlying mechanisms of it. And I think if we really f find out the mechanisms for EMDR, we'll understand how the mind works much better. Mm. It's an astoundingly effective treatment. And so, if people have had one uh, terrible thing that they cannot get out of their mind, that for me is the treatment of choice. Hmm. Um, of course, the people who come to see me in my practice oftentimes have had multiple traumas at the hands of their intimates also. Right. So then it gets much more complicated than just a memory issue. Uh, but if it's just a car accident uh, or a simple assault, it's, it's astoundingly effective. Yeah. Hmm. It's fascinating. Something else I wrote, I read, is you were reflecting on um, Hurricane Hugo, and and I, where I mean hurricanes in general or natural disasters. This this phenomenon we see of people helping each other, of getting right. out there and helping each other, and you also look at that and see that it, it's not just that people are helping each other; that they're moving their bodies. Again, there's this physical. Uh, physical involvement as an mm. kind of as an antidote to the helplessness of the situation yeah. which is so manifest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. I'm, I'm really glad you read it. Um, because, you know, people talk a lot about stress hormones and how stress hormones are sort of the source of all evil. Um, that's definitely not true. You know, stress hormones are good for you. You secrete stress hormones in order to give you the energy to cope under extreme situations. So it gives you that energy to stay up all night with your sick kid or to shovel snow in Minnesota and Boston and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, but what goes wrong is if you're kept from using your stress hormones. So if somebody ties you down, uh, 
if somebody holds you down, if somebody keeps you imprisoned, the stress hormones keep going up, but you cannot discharge it with action. And then the stress hormones really start wreaking havoc with your own internal system. Right. But as long as you move, you are going to be fine. <laughs> and so, as we know, you know, after after these hurricanes and these terrible things, people get very active and yeah. they like to help to do, and they like to do things and they enjoy doing it because it discharges their energy. So we are healing uh, ourselves. We don't realize yeah, well, that. We are using we our natural yes. system, basically. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not only healing, we're coping. We're just mm -hmm. dealing with what we need to cope with. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why you have that stuff. Right. That's why we survive as a species. Right. And so, so what... The, the thing is that you need to really help people to, to use their natural uh, stress hormones to engage in actions that make them feel good. Mm -hmm. And so if you take action, at the end you feel satisfied. You feel, I've done it. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at your building that's been rebuilt or uh, the two-by-fours you have put back in your building and the roof that you have put back on, you say, I did it. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm conquering nature. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. And so what was disturbing in, in Hurricane Hugo, which is my first encounter with it quite a long time ago, and what we saw again in New Orleans, is how these victimized populations were prevented from oh, doing right. something. And that's really what the and observation was. And that compounded was. the trauma. Yeah. And so so I, I get flown into into Puerto Rico after Hurricane Hugo because I've written a book about trauma. I knew nothing about disasters, but nobody else knew anything either, so they flew me in. And what struck me, I land in Puerto Rico and everybody is busy doing stuff and building things and everybody's too busy to talk to me because they're trying to do stuff. But on the same plane that I flew in with, officials from FEMA came in who then made announcements, stop your work until FEMA decides what you're going to get reimbursed for. Right, right. And that was the worst thing that could have happened because now these people were using the energy to fight with each other and to pick quarrels with each other instead of rebuilding their houses. Right. And that's, of course, similar to what happened in New Orleans, where people also were kept from right, just... being agents in their own recovery. Mm. I, wonder, I wonder how you look at this world we live in now where it feels like there's an acceleration of what you might call collective traumatic events or tragedies, uh, right? And it, uh, for whatever reason, I'm sure we could talk about that for hours, there, it, it seems to be more and more predictable that around the corner there will be a bombing or a school shooting or a, a terrible event um, that's involved with the weather. And um, how do you, how does what you know about trauma um, help you think about this, or mm. yeah, that's that's the question. No, I, I'm not sure if I share that view with you. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much more news, so we are much more aware of whatever happens at any particular moment. And of course, the news media, when you wake up in the morning, find the worst thing that happens somewhere in the world to serve it to you for breakfast. And so we get served much more. I'm not. I don't think there's more trauma. Actually, you know, when I you don't think more bad things happen. You just when think I read the, you know mm -hmm. how Abe Lincoln grew up, right. you know, he lost his mother, and they moved their houses all the time, and they were starving, and he was 
we had nothing. I mean, you read the stories about all the immigrants, all these people who died, and, and the number of assaults in New York City and around yeah. the country. I know I, I don't think we live in the in the worst world, and I think people are also much more conscious today than they were, let's say, hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I really have studied the history of trauma. You know, my favorite human folly is the First World War. If you think the world is bad right now, right, right. think about the First World War. Like, right. Unbelievable. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think things are, are necessarily worse. And I think you know, when, I, when I go around the country and I see the number of programs that very good-hearted people have for, uh, for school kids, etc., uh, I'm continuously astounded by the amount of integrity and creativity and goodwill that I see everywhere around me. At the same time that you see something as horrendous as an announcement I read in the New York Times last week that in Philadelphia, the school system of the public schools in Philadelphia abolished arts programs, gymnastics, counseling, Mm. and music programs. Mm. And I go, where have these people been in order to have Mm. a mind that focuses? You need to move your body. You need to sing with other people. And Mm. if you think that your kids are going to do better, if you keep them stock still in a classroom taking tests, (laughs) you don't know anything about human beings. And so you still hear about horrendous things all the time. But I see a great deal deal of consciousness at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, I I have two friends who are uh, former Turkish students of mine who are involved in what's happening in Taksim Square there. So I get their little blog post. Yeah. And I see that people are really trying to carve out more consciousness and more democracy in various places around the world. Right. I mean, so, you're right. It's all these yeah. things at once. I mean, but, yeah. but let's say um, something I'm aware of is how... Uh, so, And this would be different from the First World War era where we, we get these these pictures, these vivid images with this immediacy brought to us, yep. right? And I yeah. personally, and I mean, I think this is true collectively too, I don't, I don't know what to do with those images, right? And, and what I often, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's so disturbing. And then, and then there's also this impulse that you, you just have to cut yourself off from that feeling, right? Because you, yeah. I can't do anything um, for that particular picture. Um, and then there's this this guilt and this this feeling that that's not a satisfactory reaction. I mean, it's altogether. Well, you know, see, there's there's a very dark side to it to this also, and that is that there's a certain tropism, a movement towards misery in our lives. So yeah. that if things become too quiet, it becomes boring, and people go. You know, when you see the preview of coming attractions in the movie theaters, you go like, "Oh my God, what are these people watching?" Uh, <laughs> Uh, that people are drawn towards horrendous stuff all the time. Right. And so um, it's part of a dark side of human nature to to want to live on that edge. Yeah, know? yeah. It's, it's very hard. And I watch some of that too, and I make a distinction be- between the things that are real and the things that are not real. Huh. Huh. Um, so, I mean, okay, let me ask you, this is a different kind of question. So... When things do happen, like traumas that we all somehow vicariously take in through Twitter and television, and you know, like the Boston Marathon bombing or or or, the, or school shootings, um, you always hear about, uh, you know, that the next day in the school counseling counselors are being set up. And when I read your research, I, I wonder is is that the right 
is that the right response? I mean, it's clearly it's a compassionate response, and it seems like an obvious response. But but do we do we leap too much to having people talk about it and not taking in this big view of what's really happening to us? Well, you know, I, I was in Japan when the, in the when the Boston Marathon things happened, which was two blocks from my home, actually. Mm. Um, but you know, I got a lot of emails about it, and. I, I was pretty impressed with how people dealt with it. You know, there's a very, for one thing, the, the te- technology of how people were t- taken to hospitals and immediately mm. was really stunning. And there was this very rapid, very thoughtful response, actually, and then not a hysterical response at all. And then very quickly, there was, were these very good n- news analysis about who these bombers were. Mm-hmm. And a stunning realization that the kids who did the bombing we're not so different from the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, they went to a school where... I know a lot of kids who went to the school that these kids went to. These were kids who largely grew up in America and who were disgruntled adolescents. And it's, it, for me, it brought home how close it is, you know, how, how fragile our species is and how, how hard it is to predict who will turn out okay and who will not be okay. But I was very pleased with the the response of the medical system and the authorities and the politicians here in Boston with the, uh, with the bombing. Mm. And I thought it was good that people talked about it and mm. normalized it and talked about it. These things happen. Uh, uh, mm. I was pretty pleased. What I was not pleased by is that right after I came home, there's this big to-do down Boylston Street here in Boston of people getting very drunk, screaming patriotic slogans. Um, which was yet another excuse to just spew hatred mm. um, rather than be mindful about the tragedy that happened. Mm. Uh, but no, overall, I was pretty pleased with how it was dealt with. You know, it's very hopeful that you spend your life um, working with trauma, with victims, and in this research. But you, you have a pretty refreshingly um, a hopeful feeling about us as a species. Well, you see, part of that I get from my patients. You know, what is so gratifying about this work is that you get to see the life force. Mm. And that people go through horrendous stuff everywhere all the time. And yet people go on with their lives. And and you um, see that, you experience that. I, I see it again. all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I see very kids who grew up, grew up under terrible circumstances, and some of them do terribly. But then um, you know, so last week had a, we had our conference here, our annual conference in Boston, and somebody presented her work on doing uh, meditation in maximum security jails. Mm. And you see these really bad-ass guys uh, come to life because of this meditation program. Mm. And, you know, I see people getting better with... Uh, another program that I'm involved with is a Shakespeare program uh, for juvenile delinquents here in Berkshire County where the judge gives kids a choice between being going to prison or being condemned to be a Shakespeare actor. And, you know, I go to the Shakespeare program and these actors do a beautiful job with these kids and you see these kids come to life as they're being valued as an actor and a person who is able to talk. Mm. Um, so I see, you know, what I see is the huge, huge potential that people have to crawl out of their holes. 
So, you know, when I and I I read your research and I I think about this whole picture that we've been discussing of all the different ways people are reaching out for for um, methods uh, to become more self-aware. Mm-hmm. Um, yoga, meditation, yep. using these insights of neuroscience. Um, sometimes I wonder if, you know, 50 years from now or 100 years from now, um, people might look back on therapy, <laughs> the way we did it, we've done it for 50 years or whatever, and uh, and see it as a really rudimentary step towards a much more profound um you know, reaching for awareness and consciousness, mm-hmm. mindfulness. Well, you know, I think people have always done good therapy. Huh? And and our culture and our insurance structure is not really geared towards really very good therapy, nor is our psychological training, which is there to fix people and get rid of their disorder as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. But therapy as in people really getting to know themselves very well, and examining themselves and being seen and being heard and being understood um, has always been around, and I think it will always be be around. Um, and I don't think we'll ever talk about it as necessarily necessarily primitive, mm-hmm. because the the intimate interchange of people really talking about their deepest feelings and their deepest pain and having persons listen to it is of. It has always been, and I think always will be, a very powerful human experience. Uh, it gets all messed up when uh, we need to run it through diagnostic procedures and uh, insurance codes and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> it gets very right. complicated. But the process in and of itself is a, is a very important process. So, so the language people sometimes use about trauma would be, you know, there's a lot of spiritual language um, that you, you it, it, we intuitively grasp for, you know, soul stealing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how you, do you think about the human spirit, how you think about the human spirit in the context of what you know about trauma and resilience and healing? That's a very tough question. I know. <laughs> uh, I think you're up to it, though. Something that I've offered tended to stay away from. But, um, you know, I think trauma really does confront you with with the best and the worst. Huh? You mm-hmm. see the horrendous things that people do to each other, but you also see resiliency, the power to, the power of love, the power of caring, uh, the power of commitment, the power of commitment to oneself, uh, to the knowledge that there are things that are larger than our individual survival. Um, and some of the most spiritual people I know are exactly traumatized people because they have seen the dark side. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I don't think you can appreciate the glory of life unless you also know the dark side of life. Right. And I think the, my traumatized people certainly know about the dark side of life, but they also, because of that, see the, the other side better. You, you said somewhere that PTSD has opened the door to scientific investigation of the nature of human suffering. Ah. I mean, that's really, that, that's a profound step, right? I mean, that's, that's, I, to me, that's a spiritual way to talk about, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Talk about this field without romanticizing, well, it, you know, with, with, a, with a profound understanding of what the word spiritual means. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I think this field has opened up two areas. One is the area of trauma and survival and suffering, but the other one is also um, people are studying the nature of human connections and the connection between us, mm-hmm. also from a scientific point of view. Uh, um, last week we had our annual trauma conference here in Boston, and your own Alan Schroof, who has won the Minnesota Longitudinal Study, which I hope you're familiar with, um, was a presenter. Mm. And I was just blown away by the depth of his work, which has been going on now for 40 years, of following people up who, while they were still in the womb, mm. and looking at how these creatures developed over time. They're now 40 years old. And how their relationship to their mothers and their attachment system formed how they saw themselves in the world around them and their connections with themselves and with each other. And so um, as much as trauma has opened up things, I think the other very important arm of scientific discovery is how the human connection is being looked at um, scientifically now and what really happens when two people see each other, when two people respond to each other, when people um, mirror each other, when two bodies move together in dancing and smiling and talking. Um, There's a whole new field of interpersonal neurobiology Mm -hmm. that is studying how we are connected with each other and how a lack of connection, particularly early in life, has devastating consequences on the development of mind and brain. And it's true, isn't it, from your study that that um, that if we, if people learn to inhabit their bodies, um, to be more self-aware, that that these that these qualities and habits can serve, can can create resilience, can serve when trauma hits. Is that right? Absolutely. That's a, so if you, yeah, particularly if you're. And there's two factors here. One is the, how your reptilian brain, if you breathe quietly in your body and you feel, the, feel your bodily experience and stuff happens to you, you notice that something is happening out there and you say, oh, this really sucks. This is really unpleasant. But it's something that is not you. So you don't necessarily get hijacked by unpleasant experiences. And the, the big issue for traumatized people is that they don't own themselves anymore. Any loud sound, anybody insulting them, hurting them, saying bad things, uh, can hijack them away from themselves. And so what we have learned is that what makes your resilience to trauma is to own yourself fully. And if somebody says hurtful or insulting things, you say, hmm, interesting that person is saying hurtful and insulting things. Um, but you can separate I, your sense of yourself. Yeah, but from you can them. separate yourself from yeah. it. And and we, I think, are really beginning to seriously understand how human beings can learn how to do that, to observe and not react. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about. Um, I'm, I'm very intrigued by this new sense that this like, whole idea of closure that we've lived with in our culture for some, for such a long time, getting closure with bad events, uh-huh. is really a myth. And, yeah. and I wonder how you think about this idea of closure. Yeah. I, it's interesting you mentioned that. I, I haven't thought about it for a long time, but in my training, we had these lengthy seminars on termination um, with patients. And 
I never took Tibet. I always mm -hmm. and uh, time has borne me out in that I still fairly regularly see patients who I saw 30, 20, or 40, even now, by now 40 years ago, who I've known off and on for a very long time. And I think relationships last over time. And one's perceptions of one's parents, one's upbringing, one's hurt and pain changes as you grow and become, get a different perspective. I think the moment you have babies of your own, your yeah. perception of yourself as a baby changes, and your perception of your it's parents true. changes. That's true. That's so true. Yeah. Uh, you know, and yeah. so uh, we are in flux. <laughs> you know, right. Our and nature so what, is that we're in flux. And what yeah. you're describing is we we integrate these things, right? We we yeah. don't yeah. we don't we don't cut them off. They become more fully part of us, but but right. we're more aware of how they're part of us. Well, um, I think I just want to come back as we as we close to this idea. Um, well, just well, just a little bit to this idea of um, of our of our bodies. There's something you said. Um, let me just find this. Uh, where is this? Um, Well, I'm not. I have all these all these notes. Um, that that somehow the, the point of all of this, the take home for you, and I'm I'm not finding the quote is that we have to feel safe. That we have to feel safe, and that we have to feel safe in our. That has to be a bodily, a bodily right. perception, not just a cognitive perception. Yeah. And that somehow yeah. everything comes back to that. <laughs> it, it is the foundation, huh? and. Um, but you need, you need to actually feel that feeling. And you need to know what is happening in your body. You need to know where your right toe is and where, you, where your pinky is and where your right body is. You need to sort of be aware. It's very nitty-gritty. Uh, it's saying? very, very yeah. basic. Yeah. Now, um, you know, what's, what's sorely lacking in our diagnostic system is simple things like eating and peeing and pooping because that is... We're, they're the foundation of everything, and, 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 and breathing. Like, you know, these are foundational things, all of which go wrong, but you get traumatized. The most elementary body functions go awry when you are terrified. Yeah. And so trauma treatment starts at the foundation of a body that can sleep, a body that can rest, a body that feels safe, a body that can move. And I love the example of your guy who's paraplegic and who does yoga, because even when your body is impaired, you can still learn to own it and to have it. Yes. You know, he says he's not cured, but he's healed, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and here's a striking statement you've made, um, that victims are members of society whose problems represent the memory of suffering, the memory of suffering, rage, and pain in a world that longs to forget. Did I say that? You did. That's brilliant. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. And I, 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 yeah. I find that so worthy of reflection. You know, the, the, in a sense, you know, the, the important place of victims, what they have to teach all of us. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You want to say anything? True. You want to say anything more about that? Well, you, you know. That's the literature we read, that's the movies we watch, and that's what we want to be inspired by. Uh, that's what we observe. 
is is that spirit. Uh, Tony Morrison and and people who can Maya Angelou and these people who can talk very articulately about having dealt with and stared adversity in the face and still maintain their humanity and faith. That's uh, yeah. right, That's and then kind what of coming back to where we started, help us collectively as a species, as communities, as a culture. Ha- um, put those memories into a proper narrative, right? right? See, I, I, I think a very critical piece that uh, I thought you would come back to also is this notion of being independent people versus being interdependent people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this notion of um, demonizing other people and uh, in order to glorify yourself. And the essential thing that you really get to see when you uh, deal with trauma is how we all have these dark sides and we all have these light sides and that we're all in the same boat mm-hmm. and that you am I in a fundamental way and that your humanity and my humanity is the same humanity and I cannot be a human being without you and vice versa. I, I learned that most profoundly when I was a consultant to the Truth Commission in South Africa mm-hmm. and I got to see some of that process. And the process in South Africa was uh, centered around the issue of Ubuntu. Yes. We can, yes. You, I am because you are. And I can only be alive to the degree that you're alive and we are all living in the same universe and we are sharing it together. I mean, and I think that's really one of the great lessons from being, uh, from learning about trauma is that when you get traumatized, you think you're in the world all by yourself. And I hear many people talk, including supposedly well-functioning people, who talk about ourselves as if we're in the world by ourselves, but we aren't. Uh, We are organisms that come and go and share this common planet, and uh, we have an impact on each other. And the more more I deal with trauma, the more this issue of feeling safe interiorly but being connected with other people at the same time is really the essence of of treatment and healing and and going on with your life. Mm. But also knowing that you're just a part of a very large whole. Mm. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah. yeah. Anything else you would want to talk about that I didn't touch on? Well, you ask great questions, and I like this quote that you've had back to me. (laughs) I'll send it to you if you want. (laughs) That's great. Oh well, thank yeah. you so much. Okay. Uh, yeah, You're we'll, we'll let you know um, when we're producing this and Great. send you all the info. And it's just yeah. been really a pleasure. Thank you. Really a pleasure. Same yeah. thing here. Okay. okay. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye.